Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. This evening, I want us to do something that is a little bit different than what I normally would do in in preaching. And uh, I do this from time to time. It's just not the norm. Uh, Normal for me is to take a passage of Scripture, uh, usually some kind of a length of a passage of Scripture, and walk through those verses and make points and make applications as we go through the text, usually in some form of outline of some nature, sometimes alliterated, sometimes not. Uh, But tonight I want us to do something that I do very seldom and uh, it is a little bit different and that is I want us to spend our evening this evening in one verse and try our best uh, to take this passage and to walk our way through this verse of Scripture and see what God would have for us out of this verse of Scripture. I will say this this evening that this is a verse that I have heard uh, used in preaching, and I I say that specifically. Uh, I've heard this verse used in preaching scores of times, and no doubt you have as well. But I will venture to say, I don't know if I have ever heard this verse truly preached as a text and as a verse and what does this verse say and what is Solomon trying to get across to us when he gave us this verse more than just using it as a springboard into a topical sermon on soul winning uh, and on evangelism. But so I want tonight to try my best to take uh, a shot at to make a stab at uh, preaching this verse the way that it appears in the Scripture and try to preach it in its context and by application to us being true to this text where it is found in the Word of God. Of course, when we come to this passage of Scripture, we are... In uh, Proverbs chapter number 11. And Proverbs chapter number 11, as the rest of the book of Proverbs, it's one of the hardest books of the Bible uh, to try to outline, to try to uh, prepare. If you're going to do a systematic study through the book of Proverbs and preach verse by verse through Proverbs, uh, to try to have any kind of uniformity to that study uh, is very difficult because the, this book is not meant necessarily to be uh, one verse that follows the next verse and the train of our thought and understanding continuing through each chapter and one chapter and one verse building upon the next. But these are Proverbs. And what that means is, is that these are single statements of wisdom or short phrases or short paragraphs of wisdom uh, that really uh, do not necessarily have to connect with each other. That being said, Proverbs chapter 
chapter number 11, uh, there is a sense of uniformity to this chapter in the sense that while each verse presents its own thought, its own truth, its own scenario, uh, the central theme of chapter number 11 is a contrast between righteousness and wickedness. The values of living a righteous life and being a righteous person versus the woes that are associated with wickedness and that result uh, come as a result of wicked living. And so as you walk through this passage there is much to be said about someone that is righteous and the blessings that come with being a righteous person and then the woes as I've said that come uh, from being foolish. And uh, while there's m many wonderful truths to preach in chapter number 11 we will, uh, we will settle for this one verse this evening as I know this will be all that we can get to tonight. And that is verse number 30 where the context of righteousness is still in view here. And the, when the Bible says this in the, the first part of verse number 30 and that is that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he that winneth souls is wise. So the context, the center of focus here uh, revolves around this group of individuals that verse number 30 calls the righteous. Now as we study this verse we'll have to identify some things uh, as to what this verse is talking about and uh, try to understand exactly what it means to have the fruit of the righteous being a tree of life and what it means for the one that wins souls is, uh, is classified here as being wise. What those things mean in the verse and what they mean to us but just, just by way of introducing this I want to lay, I want to just remind you that as I studied this uh, as I studied this passage of scripture I could not help but be reminded that this seems to me to be uh, Solomon that wrote this proverb giving us a reminder yeah. giving us a reminder of uh, some things that you and I need to know as uh, individuals as believers amen and so tonight I want to preach with the help of the Lord on the subject, a reminder for the righteous. A reminder for the righteous. And I believe we do see this as uh, Solomon that chapter number 10 and verse number 1 uh, declares he is the writer of this, uh, this uh, section of Proverbs here uh, in the book of Proverbs. And I believe Solomon here is reminding us of a truth that is all too important for every child of God to understand. And so with the time that I have, I want to try to present this thought and lay it upon our heart and, and blazon it upon our minds that we might be able to apply this to our lives, having been reminded of it this evening. First of all, as we consider this reminder for the righteous, let me first begin by saying something about the fruit of this reminder. By the way, this, this message tonight is going to be a two-point message. We'll deal with the first half of the verse. Y'all, I still got several sub-points. Y'all don't get too excited. Amen. But the first half of the verse, that will be our first focus this evening. And then the second half of the verse will be our second focus this evening. But first I want to say something about the fruit of this reminder. Look what the Bible says there in verse number 30 where the Bible says the fruit of 
of the righteous is a tree of life. So when we consider this verse, we understand that it is speaking of fruit, and it's speaking of the righteous, and it's speaking about a tree of life. Now the question tonight is, what does those three things mean when they're joined together in the Word of God? Let me say something tonight about we about the fact that we must identify what the fruit is, we must know who the righteous are, and then we must know what is being described when the righteous' fruit is being described and compared to a tree of life. Notice with me, first of all, that this verse deals with the production. Look at verse number 30. The fruit of uh, this reminder, first of all, tells us about the production. Notice what the Bible says there in verse 30, the fruit of the righteous. Note the word fruit here in the Word of God. Uh, this is what uh, I believe production is what this word fruit is trying to speak to us about this evening. When we go to the grocery store to buy some fruit, what aisle do you go to? You go to the produce aisle. Me and my family, we have to spend some time on the produce aisle uh, because my children absolutely love fruit. Now, my oldest won't look to anything it looks like a vegetable uh, but they'll all down some fruit and we can't keep apples in the house and we can't keep oranges and bananas in the house and we can't keep grapes in the house they just love the produce aisle amen and so when we talk about fruit we're talking about the production of something the what is produced from something those apples were the product of an apple tree amen and apple seeds amen somebody somewhere planted uh, that tree and the product of that was those apples that eventually got put in those clear bags with the holes in it at the grocery store and then they eventually were bought in my grocery cart amen in my buggy amen and they made it to my house where my children gobbled them up like they were going to disappear amen and so we realize that that it's talking about something that is produced amen so Webster defines fruit, and I know this sounds redundant, but I just want to remind us tonight, uh, when it talks about fruit, it is not just simply talking about grapes and apples and oranges. Amen. There is uh, some poetry. There is some uh, metaphor at hand here. And so we must remember that. Webster defines fruit as whatever the earth produces for the nourishment of animals or for clothing or profit in a general sense. However, in a more limited sense it is defined as the produce of a tree or another plant it is also described as that which is produced or it is defined as the effect or consequence of something the word fruit here is a Hebrew word that while I'm not going to try to pronounce the Hebrew word for sake of butchering it tonight it is a Hebrew word that carries with it a twofold meaning and I've, I've mentioned this to you before that uh, the Hebrew language is a very picturesque language. So I'm going to use a word tonight to describe uh, the, the, what, is, uh, what is associated with this word and it is that the Hebrew words carry along with them what is known as a pictograph if I can use that 
term. And uh, this word fruit has what I would call a twofold pictograph. Now it's going to sound nuts when I tell you what it is, but just stay with me to the explanation and I think we'll understand uh, uh, how this word is, uh, is uh, uh, given to us in the word of God. And I will say this, that this verse of scripture, and I may repeat this before I'm done tonight, but this verse of scripture, while it is one that I would imagine that to most of us is fairly uh, familiar, this is a verse that is greatly attacked by those that do not stand where we stand on the Word of God. This verse is greatly attacked by those in particular that do not believe that this Bible, this King James Bible we hold in our hand, is the true, perfect Word of God. I was reading some commentaries earlier today just kind of going over and trying to make sure I had everything the way that God wanted to be for tonight. And as I was reading some of those, you'd be surprised how many of those people, and none of them uh, for the most part are uh, King James only and believe the Bible that we believe. Amen. But when you read behind them, many of them will not tell you what it should say. They'll just simply tell you that that can be what it means. And so I, I just wanted to pause right here in the message and say I'm thankful for my King James Bible. And when I, when I go through some of these things and the Greek words or Hebrew words, Hebrew in the Old Testament here, the reason why I take the time to do it is not only to amplify our understanding of the text, but to remind us that God's uh, Word, despite what the scoffers may say, despite what all of the so-called scholars may say, God got it right when He gave it to us in the English language in our King James Bible. And so I wanted to show you that. Here's the two-word pictograph associated with what is the fruit being spoken of here. It has to, it's twofold. It has the picture of an open mouth, that's number one, and then it has with it the picture of a head that combine to form an idea, a concept of opening of the head. Now, you say, preacher, what in the world does that have to do with fruit? Let me explain to you what this has to do with fruit. This word with, that is used here, this Hebrew word that the King James translator so adequately uh, portrayed in our Bible as fruit, it literally in, the, in those days was to describe the practice of the Israelites when they came to the threshing floor. The Israelites were were uh, more than familiar with the concept of the threshing floor. And you may be familiar with that as well. But the threshing floor was a smooth, hard, level floor, a level surface to where an Israelite would go with their wheat and they would throw that wheat up in the air and then it would hit that hard surface. And when it hit that hard surface, there would be some, uh, there would be some separating and things of that nature. And one of the things that they would also do when it came to uh, when it came to getting the seed of the grain and uh, other things that they may want to do with this grain, uh, they would take one of their oxen and they would take that ox and they would walk it around the threshing floor and allow the ox to stomp on all of the wheat. And as he would step, or rather on all the grain, and when he'd step on that grain, what he was doing was he was opening the 
head of the grain to where it would fall open. And this Hebrew word is associated when that ox would take his foot and he would stomp on the grain and the seed that would be exposed when the grain would open up was the fruit of the grain. It was what was on the inside. It was what was at the heart of the grain. It was what was at the source of the grain. And so that is what this word fruit here is representing. This pictograph is seen in the Hebrew language in reference to that. The bulls and breaking something or crushing something. A variation of this word would be used. The same thought of fruit is seen when the Jews would describe the crushing of grapes at their wine press as they would step on the grapes and that crushing would take place. They would see that juice that would come and it would flow from those grapes once they were crushed and that juice would be the fruit of the vine. It would be the fruit of the grapes. It would be that which was on the inside that came as a product of the action of their crushing the grapes. Amen. That came as a fruit uh, from uh, their grapes. Amen. Another interesting uh, association of this word is that it is used to speak of abundance. It is used to speak of decoration. And it is used to speak of the branches of a tree. Now again, I want you all to stay with me when I give some of these technical thoughts because we are going somewhere with it. The first part of this talking about abundance. This word is used to talk about something that is piled up in abundance. The fruit of it would be seen as not just fruit but fruit that is piled up. Something that is in abundance. And so it would talk about abundance. It also would be uh, used pictorially to describe uh, the fruit that would hang on the branches of a tree and the, the fruit that hung on the branches would be the decoration of the tree. So the word fruit here is also used throughout the scriptures to talk about something that is beautiful. To talk about something that decorates. To, that boasts the image and bolsters the image of a tree. Uh, that makes it more excellent. Amen. The branches that seen that carry those fruit. Amen. This word would talk about those branches that are heavy laden with fruit. And that means that the tree that these branches stick out from that have fruit on them, it shows that this is a tree that has life in it. It shows that it is a tree that's alive. Amen. It shows that it is a tree, amen, that has value to it. A tree that is supposed to have fruit and it doesn't have fruit is not valuable. Amen. If you don't believe me, go to the Gospels and see what Jesus' opinion was when he went to a tree that wasn't bearing fruit. Amen. He cursed it. Amen. And so we understand that. A tree that does not bear fruit is not worth much more, amen, than being cut down to the ground and being used as firewood. Amen. This tree here, uh, this fruit here, is telling us about something that exists in the heart of whoever this is in the text. And we'll notice it more in a minute. Don't get ahead of me. But whoever the righteous is, 
is. The fruit is whatever the production of their life is. Whatever their life is putting forth. Whatever their life that is putting forth that is life giving. That is valuable. That does show that there is some life within themselves. The fruit means a fruit on the outside. Y'all stay with me. Means that there's life on the inside. The fruit on the outside means that the tree itself is of great value. And the fruit from that tree would be a fruit that would be passed along to someone else. And it would provide them with nourishment. It would provide them with something that would sustain their life and take care of them. So there is something that exists in our life that is being spoken of. Amen. That is supposed to. Amen. Show that for you and I uh, that there is fruit, that there is something that shows there's life within, that shows, amen, that our life has great value. Let me ask you this tonight. How much fruit is coming off the tree of your life? Does it show that, does your life show that there is life within you if you're saved? There is supposed to be not just life, but eternal life within you. Amen. That should burst forth with fruit on the outside and make your life useful for God's glory. The fruit. So we see here this fruit. We see, amen, the production. That is speaking of that which produces, amen. But then let me say this as well. Not only do we see the fruit of this reminder, we see the production, but let's also, I have something to say about the person. Notice that this is not the fruit of the wicked. This is not the fruit of whoever, whoever's name you want to put in there. But in particular, being identified here, this fruit belongs to one group of people, the fruit of the righteous. Who are these righteous individuals? Real quickly, I hope you, I hope you can run through your Bible pretty quickly. Look at 1 John chapter number 2 tonight. 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2. I'm going to give you three verses. Let the three verses work together as we compare Scripture with Scripture to find our definition in the Word of God. I can tell you the definition of this, and most of you that's been in church in a length of time already know the answer to who the righteous are. However, I want to prove to you from the Word of God, I want us to be like the Bereans. Don't just take my word for it. But let's search the Scriptures to see what the Bible says. Who is this group of righteous individuals? 1 John chapter number 2, verse number 1, the Bible says this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now notice the name of our advocate. Notice the name of our lawyer, the one that is on our side and makes our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
The, I've told this church before numbers of times. T-H-E, the, is a definite article. That means when the Bible said he is the righteous, that means he is the one and only righteous. He is the only one that can bear the name of being righteous in and of himself. That being said, who is the righteous? Jesus is the righteous. However, Jesus is not the righteous being mentioned in Proverbs 11.30. We must continue on. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Look with me at verse number 5. <coughs> Romans chapter 12 and verse number 5. While I hear pages turning, I'll take a sip of water. It feels like an eternity for a Baptist preacher. Romans 11, or excuse me, Romans 12, verse 5. The Bible says, and I don't have time to give the context, but the Bible says, so we, this is speaking to Christians here, the Apostle Paul speaking to believers, so we, those that are saved, those that are believers, being many, and is not the is not the body of Christ, is not the group of the saved, the church of the living God, a single entity made up of many. And so we, being many, are one, notice this, in Christ. What makes a group of a multitude of people from all over the world with all different kinds of ethnicities and nationalities that speak a multitude of languages and have a multitude of differences in our culture, what allows us uh, to uh, come together in a single unit and a single group, amen, and to be identified together despite all of our differences, what allows many to be one? The Bible says it is because the many are in yes, Christ yes, and every one members one of another. So Jesus is the righteous. And now Romans 12, 5 says that all of us that are saved are in him and he is the righteous. Okay, now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I have sweated on my glasses and now this side has become bifocals but the other direction. So I turned over there and I saw two of Brother Tommy a minute ago. God bless Miss Wendy. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Tommy knows I'm picking on him. Verse 21. Amen. I love you too, brother. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him. This is speaking about God the Father hath made God the Son. God the Father hath made God the Son to be sin for us. Remember the first John 2 said that he is the righteous. Well, if he is the one and only righteous, what is everyone else? The unrighteous. Right. In other words, as the Apostle Paul would state here to the church at Corinth, we would be sinners. Right? But God the Father at Calvary made Christ the righteous become sin for us who knew no sin, that we, those of us that are unrighteous, that are sinners, might be made 
the righteousness of God in him. That, this, is, this is an illustration that my pastor used to use often. He would say, and I say to you tonight, this is my Bible. I have preached just about every message for the most part, give or take about maybe four or five. Every message I've preached since the year 2012 out of this Bible. This handkerchief I pulled out of the pack tonight. It's brand new. This has great value to me. If you wanted this before I sweated on it and slobbered on it, it was brand new. If you wanted it, you could have it. In a day where sickness ran, runs king in a lot of different places, if you were still interested in it, it's a nasty rotten rag. If you wanted to take it outside and burn it, have at it, you could do that. This means nothing to me. This means more to me than I could put words on. However, this something very precious. Let's let this represent the Lord Jesus. Yes, this, it's got snot on it and sweat on it and grossness on it. That sounds a lot like you and I spiritually, does it not? Yeah. Now, if you put this in my Bible, I close it up in my Bible, and you'd say, Preacher, I, I want that rag. You could have had it before. But until it comes out of that Bible, you're not welcome to have it. Right. Amen. You know why? Because right now they're one. Amen. Do y'all see the illustration? Right. This is what's precious. Yes. If you, hey, did y'all know this? I'm looking at that handkerchief right now. It's in there. If I took a drill and went straight through here, I'd eventually hit that. It's in there. But... It's in a better place. Because of the place it's in, if you want this, you can't have it because now it's in a precious place. That's what Jesus did for us when he saved us. We were unrighteous. We were sinful. We were wicked. We were trash and undesirable spiritually. We were completely sinful and depraved without God. However, Jesus Christ was perfect and righteous and valuable and he was holy and he had great value in heaven and he was sinless and we were sinful but the day I got saved God put me in Jesus and now when God sees me he's not seeing me but he's looking at the son of God because I'm in Christ I am not righteous but he has made me the righteousness of God in Christ because I'm in a new place therefore when we go back to Proverbs chapter number 11 and we consider the person here. Who is this verse speaking of? That the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He's speaking about those of you and I that in Christ have been made righteous. Those of us that belong to God. Those of us that are his children. So we see uh, we see here the production. Uh, we see the person. Now, let's notice the parallel tonight. Notice what he says here, and I've got to get to other parts. But notice he says that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. 
Solomon here is making a parallel between the fruit of the righteous and what he calls a tree of life. He tells us here that this parallel is a tree of life. Now let me say this. Uh, 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 the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament falls in a category of books known as the poetical books. It is a book of poetry. Psalms is a book of poetry. Proverbs is a book of poetry. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon are books of poetry in the Old Testament. So therefore it should not surprise us when Solomon, as the writer of a book of poetry, is found giving us something poetic. Here we find him using a metaphor to describe the fruit of the righteous as a tree of life. So let me say this, I do believe that when we look at this word tree, and if you study it in, as I said in Hebrew earlier for fruit, this word tree gives two ideas in the Hebrew language, one of uprightness and the other of firmness. That which gives stability. And so he's saying here that the fruit of the righteous is something that firms the believer. It is something that stabilizes the believer. It is something that causes the believer uh, to live uprightly. The fact that we it is associated with those things. Amen. It carries the idea of counsel and advice because in the ancient Hebrew tribes, the elders of their tribes were seen as trees in their community. They were the ones that you could follow their advice. You could get advice from them and they would lead you to make the right decisions. In their community, these they were voices of reason that allowed their tribe to live upright and holy and to have stability uh, in their daily life. And so there is a Hebrew association with this. However, I want to give you also some biblical associations with this. Go with me to Genesis chapter number 2. Genesis chapter number 2. Most of you have probably read this, I hope by now, in your Bible reading, if you do start over in Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis chapter number 2, verse number 9. This is the first mention in the Bible of the phrase tree of life. Tree of life. Said Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice this now. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 that tree of the knowledge of good and evil tends to get most of the focus that we consider in those chapters because of its association with the fall. However, look with me at chapter number 3 and verse number 22. God allows in just a brief moment of time in the scripture, allows <coughs> excuse me, allows <coughs> this tree of life to for just a moment come to the forefront of our biblical attention. Genesis 3 verse 22 says this, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become 
uh, as one of us, after he took of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, he, has, he knows things and has knowledge of things that he did not before. He has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, notice this, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And what he says thereafter is that that is, that is the reason why God dispelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. The central reason was that God did not want them to take of the tree of life. I personally believe that the reason why God did this was an act of mercy on them. And we can look at that and look at God as being cruel or whatever you want to do for kicking them out of the garden. You can say whatever you want to say, but I believe God's being merciful in this passage because he says, lest they take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God, if, they did, if he did not dispel them, they could have taken, taken of that tree and they could have eaten of that tree and they could have lived forever in that state of being separated from God. It is the mercy of God that God said, In the day that thou, thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That started physically. Could you imagine this life having no end date? I believe there's mercy here. They could, have, they could have lived separated from God forever. But God put a termination day on that in an act of mercy. God kicked them out of the garden lest they take of that tree. But notice here the tree of life is associated in the scriptures with life that is eternal. Life that is forever. With that concept in mind, now go with me back to Proverbs chapter number 11. Proverbs chapter number 11. It is a tree, he talks about, something that is firm and stable. Something that is not going to be changed, if I can put it that way. Another way of giving the stability, what stability is. But he calls it a tree of life and is associated with eternal life. Can I say this? That the fruit, the product of a righteous person's life, the product of a Christian's life, that which proves that there is eternal life within and that there is value to their existence is the fact that as they go, as they live, people can pick off of the tree of their life and find something that allows them to have life themselves. For you and I as believers, we have been called to be dispensers of life. We have been called to be propagators of life. As we go into a lost and dying world, we're not to encourage people in deadness. We are to point them to life and offer them something that they can even see in our life that gives them hope of life themselves that they can pick from and enjoy and have life in and of themselves. That moves me on tonight to our second and final thought. We see the fruit. 
of this reminder. Our life is supposed to have spiritual fruit that offers eternal life to a lost and dying world that gives their life stability. Ours is already stable in Christ. Amen. Our life here has stability that lost people don't get to enjoy and don't get to fathom and know we have a sureness in life that others do not are not able to get until they get in Christ. And we have that to offer to others as the fruit of our lives. The fruit of the righteous is a tree, a producer of life where people can come and find life themselves. The apples of the tree of the fruit of the righteous possess life that a Christian will put their branches out and offer life for whosoever will come and pick off of that. That's why God's called us to be a witness, to put the branches out. Amen. It is, it's a decoration of our life that makes our life attractive to a lost and dying world that would draw them to want to pick off of the tree themselves. Does that make sense tonight? The fruit of the righteous. Lastly, I want to say something about the foolishness in this reminder. The fruit in this reminder, now the foolishness in this reminder. Notice the last phrase. The Bible says, And he that winneth souls is wise. You may look at me tonight and say, Preacher, as we read that last part of that verse, I don't see any foolishness therein. And at a first glance, we might not see it that way. But can I submit to you tonight that I do believe we see foolishness in this reminder, first of all, in a statement of positivity. Look here, verse 30, we find the, the second part is a very positive statement. He says, he that winneth souls is wise. If that statement is true and factual and affirmative in its positive nature, it would be just as true and just as, just as, as, as affirmative if you were to negate that, wouldn't you suppose? Yes. If he that winneth souls is wise, does that not mean that he that does not win souls is not wise? Does that not mean that he who refuses to win souls is foolish? There's foolishness in a statement of positivity. But then there's foolishness seen in a statement of procurement. Procuring something is mentioned in this verse. He says, he that winneth souls is wise. Do you realize that the Bible teaches us, and this is not complicated, but the Bible teaches that the souls of men must be won. This word win, it, 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 this is the word that so many that do not believe our, uh, do not believe our Bible uh, have a problem with. I read one commentator today that gave no, it was in a study Bible that I have, I believe it was Charles Ryrie's study Bible. In his note all he says is that he cannot affirmatively say what this word should be, but he knew it should not be winneth. My question is, is how in the world am I supposed to know what it should have been and shouldn't have been? Right. All I know is, is as I study it out, everything, everything always goes right along with what my Bible says. Right. 
Amen. I've studied it as deep as I can study it with my, with my brain, and I have never found in my life, I've spent the last 20 years of my life since the age of eight studying the Word of God, and I'm telling you, in all of that time, I have never once found one mistake in my King James Bible. I have never once found it in error, and if anyone ever supposed it was in error, if I spent just a few minutes or a couple of hours studying, it might have even taken a few years to study it and find out the answer, but the Bible has always rang true every time. And as I study this, amen, in these days, amen, I have found out God meant what he said when he said what he did, and he that winneth souls is wise. Amen. This word does mean to take. It does mean to procure. It does mean uh, to, uh, to take, to fetch, to hold, to take hold of, to lay hold upon, to seize to acquire, to receive, to bring back, to snatch, or to take away. It literally carries with the word picture of it. And don't get ahead of me when I say this, but it made me, made me want to shout in my study. This word winneth literally carries with the idea of tongues and pulling a coal out of the fire. Do you realize when we win a soul to Christ, that's exactly what we're doing? We're taking a soul. We're taking a person. Brother Tommy dealt in Sunday school about what a soul was this past Sunday. We're taking that person, their mind, their will, their emotions, that which makes them exactly who they are, their soul, and we are taking it and rescuing it and seizing it and snatching hold upon it, amen, by force out of the fire. You tell me, amen, when the Bible said, he that went his souls is wise, why? is he that when his soul's wise. One of the reasons is, is because he realized the greatness of the need. Because that individual that will become a soul winner has realized that if, it, if they do not personally and practically engage themselves in the winning and the snatching and the seizing of souls from the devil's grasp, there very well may be no one else that will, that'll care for that soul that's dying and going to hell. Amen. We'll see their condition as headed for the fire and headed for hell and take it upon themselves to choose to be the one that by force if necessary on purpose and diligently give it all they have to rescue them. The procurement he that winneth souls, he that snatches souls, he that rescues souls, he's a, he that takes souls is wise. Amen. Can I say this? If that kind of procurement, that kind of possession of the souls of men. By the way, when I win somebody, I don't procure their soul for me. I'm not working for me. I'm working on behalf of somebody else. I am, as Paul said, an ambassador of Christ. I go in his authority. I go in his name. I go by his power. But I represent him in all that I do. Amen. When I win somebody to Christ, I am not winning them to Josh Lawson. I am winning them to Christ. Amen. I'm rescuing them from hell and bringing them to Christ to give them the opportunity not to say yes to me. It won't help them a bit if they say yes to me. But if they'll say yes to him, it'll help them in every way that they can be helped. Amen. Yes. It's, that is that important than to not be involved in that kind of business is oh so foolish. 
foolishness and a statement of positivity, foolishness and a statement of procurement. But then, lastly, let me mention this tonight. We see, we see foolishness in a, well, it's on my notes here somewhere, amen. I've got so many papers, I don't even know which way I'm going, amen. Seen in a statement of prudence. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. That is the fruit in this reminder. And he that winneth souls is, notice this, wise. That word wise, for sake of alliteration, I chose the word prudence. It means wise. That they are a prudent person. That they are a person, as one writer said, that has both theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom. They have theoretical wisdom in the fact that they are well informed enough to know the greatness of the need that exists. That he, this writer said he cannot, he cannot know too much but must be well informed enough on some very important matters such as the sacred scriptures, such as human nature and the need of salvation. If you're going to be a soul winner, friend, you better make sure you know your Bible. If you're going to be a soul winner, you need to make sure you know human nature. You need to make sure you know that all uh, that are in this world that are not saved need to be saved because not because of what they've done necessarily, but that connected with also who they are. They are rotten to the core. They are born that way in Adam's race. We are all sinners. Amen. We are all unrighteous. And without Christ, that will not change. Amen. So they must know those things, have a theoretical wisdom, but then they must have practical wisdom. They must be wise in their action as well as in their thought. They must be able to present the truths of God in a way that's easy to be understood and easy to be accepted and easy to be uh, practiced. Amen. Uh, to be taken rather. You, they, they must be able to with a loving spirit and with a kind manner present to them God's to an individual that is not saved. God's love for them and God's remedy for their sin problem. If you go up to somebody and you just with a scowl on your face tell them, well, you're going to die and go to hell. Guess what you're going to get? Somebody that's going to be just as much on their way to hell as they were to start with. It takes a very special intervention from God for that person to have their heart broken in such a way that they are ready to receive Christ at that moment. I'm not saying that it cannot be done, but I'm saying that there have been more people won by someone that has showed them love and compassion than someone who has just screamed at them or told them how rotten and dirty they are. They know they're sinful most of the time. Amen. They'll admit how wicked they are. But it is the love of God that draws us to repentance. Amen. It is His love and compassion. We go in His love men will be compelled to come into the arms of a loving Savior waiting to receive them into His family. We see here that there must be wisdom Involved. I know I'm going to be. I'm going to have to be done with this tonight. I've preached long enough already. But can I just have just a couple of more minutes to share with you some practical reasons why winning someone's soul this coming Saturday? We're going to be taught uh, this coming Sunday as well. We're going to have Saturday. We're going to have from nine to twelve p. Nine a.m. to twelve p.m. this Saturday instructions on how to be a better soul winner. And on Sunday we will have three different services to where we will be encouraged in soul winning. And I wanted to take time tonight just to, to, to point us to the fact that what we are focusing on this weekend 
is of godly value and of eternal significance. And if you are wise, as this scripture says, that a soul winner is, you'll want to get in on what God's doing this weekend. You say, preacher, where do we see wisdom in soul winning? I would say this, first of all, in the obvious. We're rescuing souls from hell. Amen. The, I wrote this in my notes. See if you can follow along with what, how I put it. You are really rescuing a real person with a real soul that will really live on forever for eternity in a very real hell that really does exist and has a real fire that really will not ever go out or get any less hot. Those individuals will really never be freed from that punishment and you are really helping them in soul winning to never go there in the first place. Did that make sense? That's the obvious of soul winning. Is that not enough for us to give all of our effort into learning how to be a soul winner and talking about Christ and giving our testimony and passing out tracts and wanting to reach someone with the gospel? Just the obvious is enough. But what about this? The operation of it. Can I say this? Just going out and winning souls and telling people the gospel, you are fulfilling Christ's commands in the Great Commission. He told us to be witnesses for Him. Not only are you fulfilling Christ's commands, but you are following in the original occupation of the apostles. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19? He said that I will make you to be fishers of men. Not fishers of fish anymore, but fishers of men. That's the daily occupation of a soul winner. We're out fishing for men. We're throwing out the net of the gospel. We're throwing it out and hoping we get a bite. Amen. And someone that sees that as attractive, sees it as something they need and want in their life, and they'll receive it into themselves. Amen. They, it's the original occupation of the apostles, fishers of men. Number three, you know what soul winning does? It fills our churches. Jesus said in Luke 14, 23, that we are to go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Why? That my house may be full. And Acts 2, verse 47 says that God added to the church daily such as should be saved. God wants His church added too. Amen. Because that's more people that's not out in the lost world and that's in God's house and being more and getting uh, learning from the Scriptures and growing in grace that they may go out and have a burden and win more folks. Amen. Toward those in the devil's clutches. Amen. Become less and less. And, God, and those in God's family become more and more. We're fulfilling Christ's command. We're following in the original occupation of the apostles. We're filling God's churches. We are giving foundation to our spiritual burdens. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? The more you win souls, the first, I'm telling you, that first soul you win to God, you know what will make you want to do? Win another one. You know what those first ten will want you make you want to do? If you win ten, guess what you'll want to do? Win a hundred. It gives foundation. Do you know those who don't care about souls are those who don't ever go soul winning? Those that never pass out a track will never be concerned with giving the gospel out. You know why? If you're not active in it, your heart and your burden for it will grow cold and still. But if you're, act you're active in it, you have given foundation to your spiritual burden, and now you'll want to do You're not just going to do it, you'll want to do it. Amen. And also, it furnishes stability for the church of tomorrow. There will be a day 
that if we do not win souls and this church is not added to, that there will be no Beacon Baptist Church tomorrow. The process of God-ordained soul winning makes sure that there are always Christians in God's churches to do the work of the ministry in future generations. The obvious, the operation. Lastly, the opportunity. Why is it wise to win souls? Because you have an opportunity to spend your life doing something that truly matters. You have the opportunity to spend your life making a difference in this life, and more than all of that, making it a, di a difference in the life that is to come. That's what soul winning does. It gives us the opportunity of opportunities. God here through Solomon gives us a reminder to the righteous that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.